All right, and now please stand with me if you're able as we hear the word of the Lord together. Uh, this morning I'll be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Acts 2, 42 through 47. This is the word of the Lord. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord remains forever. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Father, we come this morning knowing that uh, many of us come after long weeks. Uh, Lord, we come with weary hearts. Uh, we come with distracted minds. And Father, we ask this morning that your word, with our, your word and your spirit would arrest our attention, uh, that you would give us the energy we need to, to attend to your word, to hear it. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would strengthen us. And Father, we thank you that we know that your word will be faith, uh, fruitful. And here we pray, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, uh, we're continuing in our study of the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which I just read for us. And, and over the past few weeks, we've worked our way through the book of Acts. Uh, we have followed the story of the birth of the church. Uh, we have seen, uh, we've moved kind of from the ascension of Jesus. Uh, we've seen the, the Spirit rest on the disciples, uh, like a tongue of fire, seen the Spirit, Holy Spirit come. Uh, we have heard Peter suddenly emboldened preach to the crowd, and we have seen the incredible response, the repentance of those listening to Peter. And in verse 41, Luke tells us that there were about 3,000 people added to the church on, the, on Pentecost. And then in verses 42 through 47, Luke kind of wraps up these chapters on the birth of the church with a summary describing what the life of the early church looked like following that day of Pentecost. And he tells us that this newly established church uh, united in their belief in Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah, thrives and grows as they commit themselves to the teaching of the apostles, uh, to one another, and to worshiping together. And in these verses, we get, uh, we get this picture of a very simple rhythm to the life of the church, uh, receiving instruction, fellowshipping with one another, worshiping God together. And, and the result of these simple rhythms and routines is a thriving and a growing church as new believers are discipled and as the Lord adds to the numbers daily. Well, the word analog has come to represent any sort of old technology, uh, specifically something mechanical and something simple. And uh, you might think of an analog clock. Uh, those of you who grew up with an analog clock in your home or your classrooms, uh, you'll remember that constant sound of ticking that probably drives some of us crazy. Uh, but you probably have that constant sound of ticking, the chiming of the hours. I was talking with Jeff about a cuckoo clock. I'd never had one, and I, I don't know that I can handle that. Um, you know, when you think of analog, you, you can think of a clock. Uh, one of the things I'm getting used to working here is that when I'm alone in this building, I will hear a chiming down there 
and it'll startle me because I forget there's a real clock down there. Um, you know, we think of analog things. Um, you might think of the 15-pound VHS recorders that you had. You know, you remember those? Uh, that was quite the, <laughs> the thing to carry around on your shoulder trying to video kids, you know. I was a kid at that time, but, uh, so I didn't have the challenge of holding it up. That's probably why I felt like 15 pounds, too. Um, uh, you may think of vinyl records. You know, I'm an older member of the millennial generation, so I grew up in a home where we still had records and cassettes. Uh, then, as a teenager, I started buying CDs. In college, I started buying everything digitally uh, through iTunes. And then, after college, I started buying everything on vinyl again <laughs> uh, because there was just something refreshing and simple, right, about the technology of a record player. Uh, and those are just a few examples of analog technology. Maybe you remember, you know, film cameras. Uh, some of you may have been children. I'm, I distinctly remember getting in trouble when my parents developed a roll of film and found 24 pictures of our dog on it. Uh, <laughs> you had to be a little more selective about your pictures when it was on film, right? Uh, so those are just a few examples of analog technology. I'm sure you all can think of more. Uh, but when we talk about analog technology, uh, we're often talking about kind of non-digital technology, uh, built around simple mechanics, and it's the kind of the kind of stuff that you think about when Guy Clark uh, sings about stuff that works and just kind of keeps on working. Uh, well, in this passage, you know that's what Luke describes. He describes a simple church built around simple routines and simple rhythms of receiving instruction from the apostles, fellowshipping with one another, and worshiping together. You know, it's it's an analog church in its beauty and in its simplicity. But the question for us this morning is this, you know, can the analog church still work in a digital world? You know, in, in the book of Acts, God is doing something brand new, right? He's, you know, but, but the good news of the gospel is 2,000 years old now. You know, the church that we just read about being born is 2,000 years old. You know, is, is it even reasonable for us to expect that an analog church, that a, that a simple church built around the word and relationships and worship can still accomplish its mission in a digital age. That's the question that we're going to be answering this morning. And the, and the reason that we need to answer this question is because there is both external and, and internal pressure on us as a church today to, to view these practices as insufficient you know, for the life and for the growth and the fulfilling of the mission of the church in our current age. You know, the world tells us that we are behind the times, and, and we expect that to some extent. We expect to hear that. But but we also hear that, that same critique from within the church. You know, church growth strategists tell us all of the things that we need to be doing to be a thriving and growing church. Uh, but rarely uh, and do they list spending more time studying the Bible or fellowshipping with one another uh, and worshiping together as, as the way to grow. Instead, it's usually a, a strategic plan. It's vision statements. It's updating your technology. It's um, tearing out libraries and adding coffee parlors uh, it's putting more application and, and relevance into our teaching. Well, well you know, since, we, since we live in an age abounding in technological advances, uh, some of them very good, uh, but we live in an age abounding in technological advancements. We live in the, an age of church growth strategies. We live in a culture with an unquenchable thirst for whatever is new. Uh, we, we may also at times wonder if the simple rhythms and routines of an analog church are still sufficient for the life and growth of the church. So this morning, we're going to take some time, uh, we're going to walk through this passage together, and then we're going to spend just a few minutes looking at three reasons, uh, three reasons why the analog church still works in a digital age. And as we begin, I'm going to reread verse 42 for us, where Luke 
kind of describes the rhythms and the routines of the daily life of the church. It's Acts 2, verse 42 again. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When Acts begins, uh, we're told that there are about 120 people gathering together. And after the day of Pentecost, we're told that there's 3,000 more added to that community. And so you can imagine the excitement of so many people uh, joining the church. But at the same time, what an incredible responsibility to have 3,000 new believers to disciple. Um, If we had 3,000 people join us, we could no longer meet in this sanctuary, right? Think about the issues of 3,000 people joining your community in one day. So incredibly exciting what the Spirit is doing, but at the same time, uh, there's a lot of added responsibility, a lot of things to think through. And so Luke, Luke tells us that this discipleship, the discipling of these new believers, revolved around three main activities, and that they were continually devoting themselves uh, to these activities. And the first of those three things that the believers devoted themselves to was the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The apostles are the men who followed and learned from Jesus during his ministry. Uh, They're the ones we know of as the disciples, uh, including Matthias, who replaced Judas. Uh, These were the men set apart and sent out to carry the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. And here we find them obeying the Great Commission and teaching these new believers to observe all that Jesus commanded and taught them. The the apostles were, were telling these new believers about the life and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. Uh, Much like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, the disciples would have been walking through the Old Testament scriptures and explaining how Jesus fulfills these Old Testament scriptures. And F.F. Bruce, one of the commentators, he tells us uh, that this um, this apostolic teaching was authoritative because it was the teaching of the Lord communicated through the apostles. And, And learning the teachings of the apostles is an important part of belonging to the church. And we know that they were faithful to this work. We know that they were faithfully engaged in the teaching of these new believers. Because in Acts chapter 5, verse 28, uh, they're accused of filling all of Jerusalem with their teaching. You know, when they're brought before the um, the authorities, they're accused. They said, uh, you you filled the entire city with your teaching. Stop it, you know. Um, So they were faithful in doing this as apostles. And so the first thing that the believers devoted themselves to was the teaching of the apostles as they learned about the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus Christ, their long-awaited Messiah. The second of these three things that the believers devoted themselves to was fellowship. Uh, The people belonging to the early church in this passage were Jewish, and they were united together by their belief in in Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah who had come. And what this did was to create a a brand-new community, a community whose membership came uh, from all over the socioeconomic and social world of Jerusalem And the one requirement to enter this community was faith in Jesus Christ as the Savior. And this created an incredibly diverse church. And they were devoted to fellowship with one another. And this fellowship centered around receiving instruction together. It centered around sharing meals together, uh, sharing material goods together as needed, and worshiping God together. And the word used here in the Bible to describe this fellowship is koinonia. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it in Greek, but that's how Southerners pronounce it. Uh, So we call it koinonia. And this word communicates the idea of communion with one another. It it communicates the idea of sharing daily life together um, in the way that a a married couple or a family does. It's an intimate sharing of life. And this passage indicates that the people were committed to one another, uh, even sharing their possessions with the poor among them, uh, sharing meals together, sharing 
and their religious devotion to God. And, and so the picture that we see in Acts 2.42 is a picture of a diverse church deeply committed to one another. And so the second thing that the believers devoted themselves to was fellowship with one another. The third of the three things that the believers devoted themselves to was worship. Uh, they devoted themselves to worship. You know, in addition to devoting themselves to, to receiving the teaching of the apostles, we see the devotion of the early church to worshiping together. Uh, when Luke tells us in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And those prayers would have been set prayers that were part of the, um, that could have been part of temple worship. Um, they also would have been prayers like the Lord's Prayer, uh, that the disciples were taught to pray and that the disciples then taught the new believers to pray. Uh, and that would have been in addition to, to individual prayers that arose in the moment, like we sometimes pray together. And so they, uh, their, worship, their kind of worship life revolved around prayer and it revolved around breaking of bread together. And the commentators agree that the phrase breaking of bread is used twice in these verses from 42 to 47. Uh, they agree that like, this, this likely refers to both sharing a meal together because the Jewish practice of sharing a meal started with the breaking of bread, uh, but they also say that it refers to taking the Lord's Supper together. And so taking the Lord's Supper and praying together and receiving the instruction from the apostles would have made up much of what their worship looked like. And so they're devoted to this time together. And so Luke tells us that the third thing that they devoted themselves to was worship. They sat under the apostles' teaching. Uh, they took the Lord's Supper together. They prayed, gathered at the temple. They prayed, gathered at home. They prayed privately. The early church, the life of the early church was full of prayer. And these daily rhythms of instruction and fellowship and worship flowed out of devotion to one another and also devotion to their God. And so in verse 42, Luke describes these daily rhythms and routines of the early church. And then in verses 43 through 47... Luke describes the results, and the main result that we see is that God is glorified through the lives of his people. That's kind of the main result. We're going to talk about some other results, but the first big one is that God is glorified. Edward Welch, the way he explains you know, what it means to glorify God, is he says that to glorify God means to make him obvious and beautiful. You know, to, to glorify God means to make him obvious and beautiful. And that's what we see in these verses. You know, God is being made obvious. God is being made beautiful to the people within the church and to the people outside of the church through the devoted lives of these new believers. You know, God is glorified in the lives of the believers and in the results of these daily rhythms. And one of the results of the daily rhythms of the church is an awe-filled awareness of the presence of God in their midst. Uh, there, there's this awe-filled awareness of the presence of God in their midst. midst there's a a real awareness that God is with them in all that is happening. I'm going to read verse 43 again. This is Acts 2, 43. If I can get my ribbon out of the way. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. It says everyone was feeling a sense of awe. Yeah, Simon, Simon Kistemacher explains it this way. He says, a sense of awe filled the hearts of all believers because they experienced the nearness of God in their midst. If you think back to Moses, right? If you remember Moses in the burning bush, you know, Moses, he takes off his shoes because he realizes he's standing on holy ground. Uh, the believers can see that God is in their midst, and so they feel the sense of awe, the sense of wonder that comes at being in the presence of their God. Uh, they're filled with wonder. They're filled with awe. They're amazed at what God is doing in his church and we're told that the apostles aren't only teaching the people, they're also performing signs and miracles. And here again, we see the apostles carrying on the work of Jesus. You know, their ministry of teaching and of performing 
accompanying miracles looks like the ministry of Jesus. Uh, when Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, yeah, we, see, we see these signs, we see these wonders that are attesting that Jesus really is the Messiah, that he has really been sent by God. And so as the, uh, as the apostles follow his ministry, as they teach and as they perform signs and wonders, we see that they are really sent by God, that God is really in their midst. And so one of the results of the rhythms of the church is an awe-filled awareness of the presence of God with them that was especially brought home through the works of the apostles. Another result of the rhythms of the church was an unbelievable unity among the believers. It was an unbelievable unity among the believers. I'm going to read verse 44 through the beginning of verse 47. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. We'll finish that verse in a minute. You know, what, a, what an incredible picture of the unity among these new believers. You know, Luke, Luke tells us that in this new community formed around faith in Jesus, that they were fulfilling the teachings of the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus concerning caring for the poor among them. Uh, those who were wealthy were voluntarily providing for the poor by selling property, by selling possessions to create a type of mercy fund, you know, money set aside to help those in need. And Luke highlights this practice to emphasize the religious devotion of the believers in fulfilling the call to care for the poor among them, and also to emphasize the depth of the fellowship and care for one another. Uh, you know, this, this selling of possessions, the selling of property to provide financially and physically for one another is something you might expect to see in a, in a family, in an ordinary family, but maybe not something you expect to see um, in a church family, right? This is a, a radical thing going on. This is a, a sign of unbelievable unity, uh, that they were a family. They were a new community, a real community devoted to one another. And so we see their unity on display and the fact that they are um, giving up their possessions to provide for one another. We also see their unity on display in the fact that they gathered at the temple to worship together. And, and to some of us, it might come as a surprise to learn that the Christian community was still gathering at the temple. Well, one of the reasons they gathered at the temple was space. Uh, there weren't many places that could hold 3,000 people. Uh, one of the commentators joked about this being the first megachurch. Um, there aren't a lot of places back then that you could fit 3,000 people in uh, in the city of Jerusalem. So commentators tell us that the Temple Mount had about 35 acres of space. So it was one of the only places that could hold a large crowd like this. And gathering at the temple to worship together is in line with both their shared Jewish background and is also in line with the Gospels that tell us that Jesus actually taught his followers um, at the temple. Uh, Mark and Luke both record many times when Jesus is teaching at the temple. And so we see their unity and their commitment to gather at the temple to worship together. This is most likely where the apostles were doing their teaching of, the, of this crowd. I uh, would have been there because that's where 3,000 people could fit. And so we see their, their unity in their gathering for worship. Another way we see their unity is in their sharing meals together. Uh, sharing a meal together is usually something reserved for family or close friends. Uh, a lot of us, it's... Uh, I spent my entire week, sorry Amanda, I spent my entire week getting our house ready to have family come over. Uh, I hope they're not watching either because they don't know. Um, but you know, we spent our time, it's, it's a big deal sometimes to have family and friends over for a meal. Um, but they were doing this daily, having one another over, sharing a meal that was something that was normally something that would be for family or for friends. Here the church is habitually gathering to eat together. 
You know, their shared faith in Jesus Christ has created a new family. Uh, and this, if you think back to the Old Testament, this is a fulfillment of God's promise to set the solitary into families. Uh, the church brings people together in a way that nothing else does. It creates a family from all kinds of backgrounds united to one another in Jesus Christ. And we see this in the way that they provide for each other's needs and the way they, they gather for worship, the way they share meals in each other's homes. We also see this in their united response to all that's happening around them. Now, they have a united response. Uh, we're told that they are united in praising God. Uh, they recognize that something incredible is happening in their midst. And they rightly recognize that God is the one doing this. And they're experiencing um, all this wonderful shared life together. And so they erupt in praise to God. They recognize God is the one who's done this. God is the one who has um, created this new community that they are now in. And the result of their simple rhythms and routines of daily life is an unbelievable unity among a diverse group of people, and it gives God glory. And Luke goes on to tell us that another result is a ready response from the people of Jerusalem. I'm going to read verse 47. I'm going to read the end of verse 47, which I left off earlier. It says, And having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this group had favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, Luke... Luke has highlighted the religious devotion of the believers. Uh, they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. They were devoted to caring for the poor among them. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to worship. And much of this was going on in the public arena. Like we said, there was only a few places where this many people could gather, and it would have been out in public and outdoors. And we're told that this leads to favor with the people of Jerusalem. And for those of us who, if you've read the book of Acts, if you think about the history of the church uh, this is a unique moment for the church in Jerusalem, for them to have favor with the people. Uh, they're still seen as a group within Judaism. Uh, they are praised for their religious devotion. And in just a few chapters, that's going to change, and we'll study that together. But in this moment, the people of Jerusalem look on them with favor, and we're told that in fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2 that Peter quoted in his Pentecost sermon, uh, in fulfillment of that, the Lord is adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And I want to read that um, that passage again. I'm going to read Joel chapter 2, verse 32. So this is Joel 2, 32. And it says this, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Um, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he quoted this early in this passage of Joel, saying this has been fulfilled, and we see it even now. The Lord used the teaching of the apostles and the witness of the church to bring many to himself, to rescue many from the coming judgment. In Acts 2, uh, 42-47, we see these daily rhythms of the church, bringing God glory, making him obvious and beautiful, and those within the church respond with awe and with praise, and those outside the church respond with favor. And many of them believe the good news of the gospel and are saved. And so this passage describes an, an incredible moment in the history of the church. It's a church bursting with, with life and growth, and yet, and yet we wonder, can these simple rhythms of studying the word, uh, building relationships and worshiping together still lead to a vibrant church? You know, does, does an analog church still work in a, in a digital age? Well, before we go, I want to briefly give us three reasons I'll give us three reasons why the analog church not only still works, uh, but is exactly what our digital world needs today. The first reason 
why the analog church is what our digital world needs is because in a world that has rejected any notion of objective truth, we need authoritative biblical truth more than ever. Uh, In a world that has rejected any notion of objective truth, we need authoritative biblical truth more than ever. You know, we live in a world that has rejected truth, and as a result, it's really, it's come unhinged. You know, philosophically, our culture rejected the idea of absolute truth a long time ago, but we still largely were able to function as a society because we held some significant truths in common. Uh, We were able to define words and ideas like good and evil, uh, men and women, justice, friends, enemies. Uh, We were able to define those words and ideas together in a common way, but that's not the case anymore. You know, we live in a world that is lost and has rejected any sort of common understanding of what it means to be found. You know, in this moment, you know, we need authoritative biblical truth more than we ever have uh, for the continued faithfulness of the church and also to pursue our mission to rescue the lost, to point them back home to their creator they've rebelled against. And so the first reason why the analog church is what our digital world needs is because in a world that has rejected truth, we need authoritative biblical truth more than ever. The second reason why the analog church is what our digital world needs is because in a world that has embraced digital community, we need in-person relationships more than ever. In a world that has embraced digital community, we need in-person relationships more than ever. Uh, There are very few places outside of family remaining in our culture where people gather together on purpose to build and deepen relationships. Our world is, is longing for relationships, but they are filling this need digitally. And this isn't a shot at social media. This is a recognition that for many people in our world, across all ages, the bulk of the relationships are now created and maintained digitally. Uh, we create and maintain relationships through social media, through, through gaming communities, through our, and through our phones, because we long to be connected. We long for relationships. Uh, but listen to what uh, Sherry Turkle says about these relationships. She kind of describes digital relationships. She says... Digital connections uh, may offer the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. Our network life allows us to hide from each other, even as we are tethered to each other. Networked, we are together, but so lessened are our expectations of each other that we can feel utterly alone. Uh, And and we know this. There's a difference between asking for prayer in a a group chat or on social media and kind of getting a, a prayer hand emoji back. And asking for prayer in person and having a person or a group of people pray for you right then, right? And we recognize and we feel that difference. Uh, Studies show that we live in a time when even the most socially connected people are incredibly lonely. Uh, We we need the church to invite the lost and the hurting and the lonely into the relationships that we enjoy as a church family. Uh, One of the things that we struggle with at times as a church, and I've only been here like three weeks, I'm not talking about y'all specifically, I mean big picture church. Uh, One of the things that we struggle with as a church, is we enjoy these deep relationships with one another, but it's a challenge for us to remember to invite those outside to come in. Uh, but they're looking for what we have. They're looking for these relationships. Um, they want to be connected. And so the second reason why the analog church is what our digital world needs is because in a world that has embraced digital community, we need in-person relationships more than ever. And then the third reason why the analog church is what our digital world needs It's because in a world that has embraced spiritual chaos, we need orderly worship more than ever. So in a a world that has embraced spiritual chaos, we need orderly worship more than ever. Um, Alan Noble uh, says that the greatest witness 
to the world will always be the body of Christ gathered to worship. Uh, he says the, the greatest witness to the world will always be the body of Christ gathered to worship. You know, we live in an age of spiritual chaos, uh, which has been true of the church since the beginning. Uh, we look at the book of Acts and see the things going on. They live in an age of spiritual chaos too. Um, but this truth may have become uh, more real to us uh, over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, you know, we've spent decades um, teaching and learning that everything we see in this world, um, ourselves included, is nothing but the product of time and chance, and that creation and humanity don't put to, point to anything uh, beyond what we can see. Uh, there's no spiritual reality around us. Uh, and this has left generations lost, uh, feeling a spiritual thirst, uh, searching for transcendence, uh, but trying to quench their thirst from broken cisterns that can't satisfy. And so just like every generation of the church, we live in a world of spiritual chaos where people are trying to find meaning and purpose and identity apart from the God who created them. And so we need this orderly worship that we see, this worship centered around uh, prayer, centered around receiving instruction from the, the God's word, uh, centered around worshiping together in the sacraments and these ordinary means of grace of prayer and Bible reading and communion to be a... We need to continue these things to be a faithful witness to a spiritually confused world. Uh, like we see in Acts, the, the world was watching them. Uh, the world was watching them. And so as we continue in our worship, we are a faithful witness to the world. Uh, the world doesn't need the church to look like the world for us to be a, a more effective witness. Uh, the world needs the church to look like the church. Um, it needs us to look different. And so let us look to Christ, um, the author of our faith, uh, the founder of the church, he unites us to himself and to one another as his church. Uh, look to him to help us to live lives of devotion to his word, to live lives of devotion to one another, and to worship, entrusting the results of our faithfulness to him. 